Praise the Lord. It's good to know that God is my everything. Lots of folks are going to put their trust in a lot of different things, but I can tell you right now, those things will never be sufficient. But God being our everything, we can have complete comfort and faith in Him. Amen? Oh, it's just good to be in the house of the Lord with the people of God tonight. And uh, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. I'm not going to let you free of that passage just yet. And um, just good to feel the presence of the Lord in the middle of the week. And know that the Lord is with us and that he's helping us. Amen. What a great comfort it is to serve the Lord. Amen. Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read these 12 verses again in your hearing just for context. And then we'll, we'll take off from there. Matthew chapter 5 verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Amen. A passage that does not elicit a great deal of joy, or I didn't hear any shouting as we were reading those verses, nobody running the aisles. But there are great promises in this passage. Amen. So let's go to the Lord in prayer tonight. Ask him once again, open our hearts and minds to his word that we would receive. Lord, we're grateful for the opportunity to be in your house tonight. Thank you, Lord, for your presence that we have felt, and I thank you, Lord, for your word. And I trust tonight, Lord, that you're going to be with us, you're going to help us, you're going to open our hearts and our minds to receive your anointed word, that this word would take root in our hearts and that it would grow and it would transform us from the inside out and that it would renew our minds. Lord, we will be quick to give you the praise and the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody said amen. Amen. You can be seated. And uh, I'm cheating a little bit tonight. I don't know what's going on, whether it's, as my mother-in-law says, my psychotic nerve. Or maybe I said that about her. I don't know. Maybe maybe I should take the blame, credit, whatever. Um, But uh, nevertheless, um, it hurts when I stand. It feels better when I sit. So I finally found a way that I can be like the Lord. The scripture said he sat down and taught them. So that's what we're going to try to do tonight. Um, finally, uh, I, I remember, some of you will remember Brother Billy Cole. He um, was, could be somewhat a polarizing character. And uh, he was having Holy Ghost revivals decades ago, and he would identify those who were seeking after the spirit and he would set them in chairs across the front and then they would pray over them and they would receive the spirit and some some really were offended by putting them in these chairs said i got the holy ghost on my knees at an altar and he said that's fantastic you got it john wesley style you got it like the methodist got it but he said you know if you remember acts 2 he filled all the house where they were sitting so I don't want to break unity tonight, so I'm, we're all going to be sitting. Amen? <laughs> Amen. We've been talking about this Sermon on the Mount and specifically these opening verses called the Beatitudes. I've um, been thinking, I, I've mentioned this, you know, it's somewhat like the, 
um, the constitution of the kingdom that Jesus was ushering in. And uh, if anything, these opening verses are like um, the preamble. Uh, you might think of it in terms of our own constitution or our declaration of independence. Um, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and uh, are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Well, Jesus was not establishing an earthly kingdom, but he was setting the groundwork for an eternal kingdom that he was opening the door for men to be able to partake of. And so we have spent the last couple of weeks talking about these various verses because each of them identify a characteristic that if you have this characteristic, then there is a reward for that. And it's striking how many times the reward doesn't seem to go with the, um, with the characteristic. Uh, you know, blessed are they that mourn, which means those that mourn shall be filled with joy. That blessed are the sad, happy are the sad, just doesn't seem to make sense. Some of them make a little more sense. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Um, folks at our age, wanting to avoid too much religion, they would just call that karma. What goes around comes around. But I'm going to just tell you, there's not, there aren't accidents in the kingdom of God. And the, what, we, what we sow, we're going to reap. The Lord said, don't be, don't be deceived. Whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. And of course, um, you better be careful what you sow, because reaping is a different beast altogether. You don't reap when you sow. But you reap more than you sow. Most of us, with a little bit of patience, it's a cliche, it's been said. Most of us, with a little bit of patience, can count the number of seeds in an apple. But there's nobody in here that can count the number of apples in a seed. And when we, when we sow these things into the kingdom of God... We can be comforted in knowing that God is a good keeper of records. He keeps good records. And his grace and his mercy cause him to pour onto us multiplied multiplied blessings. We give him loaves and fishes. He feeds multitudes. Whatever we give him is woefully inadequate and hardly even warrants being called a sacrifice. But when we give it to him, he has a way of multiplying and pouring it back on us. And I think it was mentioned on Sunday, right? Pressed down, shaken together, running over. Now, if you read that verse, he, the Lord said, that's what men are going to give to you. Now, if the Lord controls the heart of men such that they give back to us, pressed down, shaken together, running over. When it comes time for the Lord himself to pass out rewards, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, I just have a feeling is not going to cut what the multiplied exponential growth of what the Lord has for us. Paul said, I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. So we enter into this kingdom with great hope, not in anything that we would do, but knowing that if we submit ourselves to the Lord, he will bring it to pass and he will protect us, he will bless us, he will give what it is that we have need of. And so he's laying these ground rules early on here in um, what we would call the Sermon on the Mount. We touched on several of these things in some detail over the last few weeks. But what's interesting to me is to, it's not unique to this passage of Scripture, to think about the implications past, present, and future of these things. You know, it's the same way with our salvation. Um, You will find in the New Testament, you will find references to our salvation in the past tense, as something that has already been accomplished, you'll find it in the present tense, and then you will find it in the future tense. Our same salvation, and this this works on people's theology, right? Makes it hard to makes it hard to kind of put down a system and write a formula 
Because if I find one verse, it seems like it's already done. I find another verse, it seems like it's ongoing. And I find another verse that looks like it's in the future. What I mean is, Titus says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy hath he saved us. Past tense. We have been saved by his mercy. And we can all think back to our conversion experience and remembering what the Lord did for us, how he called us out. He dug us out of Jeremiah's pit and he put us on a solid rock. We can remember that. But then Paul would say in Ephesians, by grace, are you saved? You're saved. You are saved now. It's not just some distant fact, but the impact of your salvation continues even now. Oh, thank the Lord for that. I'm thankful that my salvation is not some distant experience that happened years and decades ago or whenever it was, but has no impact on today. No, I'm in the spot of being saved. I'm in the ark of safety. I'm, I'm protected today. And then we quoted last week, just as an example, John said, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. Then he says, Beloved, Now are you the sons of God, but it doth not yet appear what we shall be, for we shall be like him. Now, lest there be any confusion, I hate to break this to you, but there's nobody in here that's already like him. We may be saved. We had a salvation experience. We have the power of the Holy Ghost at work in our lives today. We have the the benefit of having been saved active in our lives today, but there is more to come. There is something in the future. Well, I think the same thing is kind of going on here with these beatitudes. And this is where the rubber meets the road because it's nice to sit back and say, isn't it interesting how these beatitudes logically proceed one to the next and how parallel that is to our salvation experience, namely When I came to the Lord, I had to be poor in spirit. I had to recognize my poverty, complete, total, abject poverty with nothing to offer him. And that caused me to mourn. And that mourning bred in me and resulted in a a sense of meekness that I needed to be careful about the way that I approached the Lord and not take anything for granted, not assume anything. And that those things caused me to have a hunger And a thirst for righteousness. Isn't it amazing the things that we hunger after and our desires and so forth. And I would say, you know, when we take stock, sometimes it's hard for us to assess where we are in our walk with God. Because Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? When Jeremiah says, you try to examine yourself, good luck. Your own heart will deceive you. You can't even ask yourself, am I okay? Because your heart will say, yeah, it's all good. But one good way for us to assess where we are in our walk with God is take an honest look at our appetites. What is it that we crave? What is it that satisfies us? Are we after junk food or are we after the bread of life? You know, the wise man said to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. But the full soul loatheth a honeycomb. You can't make it sweet enough for a man who's full, completely fed, satisfied. This was part of the problem with the Laodicean church. They thought they were rich and increased with goods and had need. They had need. They had need of nothing. And the Lord said, you have, because that's your assessment of yourself, you have misassessed yourself. Partaking of the things of this world will take the edge off of some of our appetites and even the sweetest, even the greatest things of God hold no interest to us because we've been satiated by all of the noise and everything that goes on in our world. We've been desensitized to it. But when we empty ourselves and there is a hunger, the wise man said, you don't need to give a hungry man a honeycomb. You can give him anything. And the things of God, righteousness, 
the things of God that would turn up the nose of most people who have not emptied themselves and to the natural man don't seem attractive at all, when you begin to cultivate that true hunger for God, even the bitter things are sweet. Even the things that you think, I, you know, some people can tell the story of coming into the church when they were adults. And what they saw at their first experience turned them off. It was not of interest. It was not attractive to them. But the hungrier they got, they remembered there was something there. Now, there was a lot of things I didn't understand, but I felt something. And whenever that hunger is stirred up so much, it draws us back into the presence of the Lord. And so it's, it's nice to be able to sit here. We're all dressed up, cleaned up on Wednesday night. And we're talking academically about these beatitudes and how they logically proceed one to the other and they give us confidence in our salvation experience in our past. But what about our present? How does this impact today? How does this instruct how I live? Because the beatitudes don't say, blessed are those who were poor in spirit. Blessed are, present tense, the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who mourn. We, we don't want to hear that, but that's the word of God. So I think it's important for us to take a look, even in our own lives, as to how much are we tending to model these ideas that the Lord himself taught as the entry point into the kingdom. And how does it, what does it mean, for instance, for me to be meek? To me, what's interesting about this passage is the parallel with 1 Corinthians 13. And I want to explore that a little bit tonight. These characteristics, in many ways, parallel what Paul would say about love in 1 Corinthians 13. And I think that is, that is no accident. But one of the characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is that it doesn't seek its own. Whether we look at these characteristics in Matthew 5 or we take 1 Corinthians 13, it should not surprise you that our best example is the Lord Jesus. He's the one who shows us these things in their fulfillment. And when Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, and he said, talking about Jesus, said, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he had every leg to stand on. He, it was not thievery for him to set himself equal to God. Because he was God manifest in the flesh. And yet... Even though he was God manifest in the flesh, yet he made himself of no reputation. And he humbled himself unto death. Have you ever thought about just that phrase? We hear this. But Jesus is the second man, Adam. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. In the garden, God formed him from the dust of the earth. He breathed into him the breath of life. He's made a living soul. The second man, Adam, was not made a living soul. The second man, Adam, talking about Jesus Christ, he was a quickening spirit. He had life in him. In the King James, when you see quick or quickening, it means that it's alive. So Hebrews 4, the word of God is quick and powerful. It doesn't just mean that it'll head you off at the pass. It will do that. But what, the, what it really means is that the word is alive. And it's powerful. So when, when Paul would write and say the second man, Adam, was a quickening spirit, he's making the contrast. The first man, Adam, was just there as a type. He was a shadow of what was to come. But when Jesus came, he did not need anyone to breathe into him. He was life. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And so life comes from him. So when we start to put all of these things together and we're trying to kind of understand where we are and how does all of this fit together, it shouldn't surprise us too much that 1 Corinthians 13 
very closely mimics what's in Matthew chapter 5. Because Paul himself would say in Romans that love is the fulfillment of the law. That's, that's pretty profound. That everything we would see in the law, take the Ten Commandments, all those things are, those do's and those don'ts, they are expressions of love. Either love for God or love for your fellow man. And as I said last week, that's why Jesus would say the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you have those two things, that's really all you need. Everything else falls from that. So Paul would say, love is the fulfillment of the law. What's Jesus saying here at the entrance to the kingdom? If, if, you, if you can't be submitted, if you can't love, if you can't be meek, then you're not going to be in the kingdom. Jesus exemplified it. Joseph in the Old Testament. Think about Think about Joseph in the Old Testament with some of these characteristics. Mercy, meekness. See, I, I, I know I, I work a secular job. I understand how these things work. And my job is not as rough and tumble as some of you guys. I get it. But, you know, there is, if you're not careful, you get sucked into this idea in the world that meekness doesn't get rewarded. If you want to get ahead, you gotta you gotta make your case, you gotta defend yourself, you gotta stand up for yourself. Well, that may be true to a measure. My advice would be trust those things into the Lord's hands and try to live like a Christian and let the Lord take care of it. Right? Think about think about Joseph in the Old Testament. This is not meekness is not necessarily a characteristic that is Desired in our world, but in the kingdom of God, it's crucial because meekness, and some of us were talking about this last week, meekness is not weakness. Meekness doesn't mean that you don't have strength. Meekness means I have strength, but I have submitted it to the will of God. And if you think about Joseph in the Old Testament, God had a purpose for Joseph. And Joseph's purpose, which he did not know, until it was time. Joseph's purpose was to save the nation of Israel. That was his purpose. When Joseph was a young boy and he was stirring up resentment with his brothers and when they bound him up and they were going to kill him, Joseph didn't know it was his purpose to save them. All he knew is, I'm being mistreated. And when they threw him in the pit and they left him there to die, he didn't know what his purpose was. And when the band of nomads came by and they sold him into slavery and sent him down to Egypt, he didn't know what his purpose was. And when he was in the house of Potiphar, he didn't know what his purpose was. And when she lied on him, Potiphar's wife, he didn't know what his purpose was. And when he went to prison, he didn't know what his purpose was. And when he interpreted the dreams and he got it right, he didn't know what his purpose was because then they forgot him. He said, remember me. And they forgot him. But God had a purpose. Now, picture this. Joseph sits there. He's been promoted. He's the prime minister of the most powerful, most affluent nation in the world, in the known world. He's second in command. He answers only to Pharaoh. And those boys that subjected him to 20 years of misery come walking in the door. Strength says, I'm going to show you where you messed up, boys. And this one's going to leave a mark. But meekness says, is daddy still alive? Do you have a brother? Before God could put him in that position, he had to know. Because Messiah is coming out of those, one of those boys. The Lord had to know that Joseph would exercise meekness whenever he was given the opportunity to exact revenge. He had the power of life and death. He could have wiped them out. But the Lord knew 
he's been through enough. The psalmist said it like this. He said, it is good that I was afflicted. I hate verses like that. It is good that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. He said, difficulties that come into my life, they teach me some things. And we all like celebrations, we all like victories, but the truth is, we don't learn that much from blessings. (laughs) When the Lord wants to teach us something, he has to make it hurt, so we have to sit down in front of everybody. When the Lord wants to teach us something, he has to do something to slow us down and teach us that our own strength is insufficient and we have to learn to rely on him. And Joseph fulfilled all of those characteristics when he reached out to them and he provided them with their salvation. So the question for us is, are we going to live by these characteristics? What happens when we get hurt? And I have news for you. I know this is not going to be news for most of you, but you can be hurt even in church. People hurt your feelings. People say things. Sometimes they don't think. There's a lot of times, folks, it's not malicious. They don't mean anything by it. They just, they just weren't thinking about it. They didn't have the same background. They didn't come from where you came from. They don't know your story. They just, they don't know. And sometimes things hurt. It's, I'm not, I don't mean to trivialize anything. It can, it hurts. But how are we going to react? And when we start talking about the parallel between Matthew 5 and 1 Corinthians 13, it's interesting to note the setting of 1 Corinthians 13. Yeah, the obvious thing is it's between 12 and 14. I get it. But what's in 12? Well, Paul identifies the gifts of the Spirit because he's writing this letter to Corinth and they're all out of balance. They're all out of whack. So he writes a letter and in chapter 12, he identifies the gifts of the Spirit. But he doesn't stop there. He makes the analogy in 1 Corinthians 12 of the church being like the body of Christ. Oh, I think this is more important than the gifts. Because Paul is telling us how we're all connected and how we all work together. You can use this body analogy and you can make really, you know, you can get a little bit maybe too lighthearted about some things. But when Brother Clyde T sits over here and he plays the piano with his hands, do you think his legs get jealous because they can't play the piano? I mean, these sorts of things don't make sense. Except within the body sometimes there is resentment. What happens when one is lifted up? What happens when another one suffers? (laughs) My uh, doctor when I was a kid was also the doctor for our high school football team. And I went in one time and I was hurting and he told this funny story um, that he was over at the high school and one of these great big old guys, a lineman or something, came in and he was limping. He could hardly walk. And Doc said to him, said, what in the world's going on? He's thinking knee, ankle, something. He says, man, I got an earache like you wouldn't believe. He said, an earache? He said, man, it just hurts. Well, sure enough, he had a really bad ear infection. The point was, his ear was hurting so bad he couldn't hardly walk. There was sympathy, right? And, and it's like, it just make you limp around. Are we that way when there is someone who is hurt in the body? Is there, a, is there a sympathetic pain or a sympathetic reaction? Or do we say, yeah, I, I knew they had that coming. Yeah, I knew, I, I knew they weren't all they were cracked up to be. I knew their reputation was more than what they really are. You know, the Lord said toward the end or through Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, it was his goal that there be no schism in the body. That word for schism there literally means to be torn or division, a divide. I think we all know what a schism is. The point is God takes his body very seriously. It reminded me, you remember the story in the Old Testament. Israel is coming out of Egypt. And they're in the wilderness. 
And like a bunch of kids, they're whining and complaining because it wasn't as comfortable as when they were getting beaten back in Egypt. It just makes no sense, but that's what they were doing. And so Moses got a little bit angry. He goes to the Lord, what am I going to do? You stuck me with these people. How, how am I going to? And the Lord says, there is this rock. Go and smite the rock. Use your staff, the same one that you use to divide the Red Sea. Go and smite that rock. And when he did that, water came out of the rock. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, jump over to the New Testament. Paul is very clear. He says, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, how that all our fathers were together. They passed through the cloud and through the sea. And they did all eat. So they came through the Red Sea together. They all ate the same spiritual meat. They had the same food. They all ate the manna. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. Because they drank of that rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. So Paul clearly identifies for us what the rock is that's following them. Now fast forward a little bit. Another episode. Children of Israel get whiny again. And Moses gets aggravated. And the Lord tells Moses, speak to the rock. But Moses was angry, and he took his rod, and he smote the rock. was not what the Lord said to do. And the Lord said, because you didn't have faith, you're not going to get to go to the promised land. I've, I've mentioned this before. That seemed unbelievable to me. Not Moses. I mean, we're talking, we're talking 12 plagues or 10 plagues, Moses. We're talking Red Sea, Moses. We're talking manna, Moses. We're talking quail and all of that stuff. And not get to go into the promised land? But I wonder if maybe it had to do with the fact that that rock that followed them was Christ. And when he smote it the second time, he ruined the type, but he was abusing the body. Jesus was crucified once for sins on Calvary. He told them the night before at the Last Supper, he gave them the bread. He said, this is the bread. It's broken for you. It represents my body. That was the one time his body was supposed to be broken. It was broken there at Calvary. And now everything that was purchased at Calvary is available to us when we speak to the rock. We ask. It is available. But let me tell you, if we do things that cause division in the body... The Lord takes it serious. A brother Kilgore always told us, he said, there's three attitudes you need to live your life in. The first is repentance. Make it right. Repent. That largely has to do with our relationship with the Lord, although it can be to each other. But the second one is forgiveness. And the third is thanksgiving. So if you repent, Sister Kilgore, she's a little more practical. She said, if I repent every morning, whenever the Lord comes, I will always have less than one day to deal with. One day's missteps, one day's bad attitudes, one day's slip-ups. I repented of everything else this morning. And so whenever the Lord comes, if he comes, hopefully if he comes before noon, I've only got a few hours I have to deal with. (laughs) Repentance, regular repentance, a life of repentance. Sensing whenever something is not right, allowing the Holy Ghost to convict us and not putting it off, but dealing with it right at that moment in which the Spirit is grieved. Lord, forgive me, help me, I want to do better. But it can't just be repentance, it's got to be forgiveness too. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. If we want to be blessed, we want to be fulfilled... We've got to be willing to forgive. Now, we don't have to forgive the Lord, but everybody else that does wrong, they, whether they understand it or not, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I remember thinking it was pretty clear they knew what they were doing. They were killing him. But he said, no, 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 no. They, yeah, they know what they're doing to my flesh, but they don't know what they're accomplishing. So he says, Lord, don't hold this to their charge. Interesting that Stephen would say the same thing in the book of Acts as he's being stoned. Lord, don't put this on their account. Don't put this on their charge. 
And then Thanksgiving, you know, it's hard to be bitter whenever you're looking around for stuff to be thankful for. Gratitude is a habit we would do well to develop. Whenever we start to feel like it's not going our way and it's just not fair, well, then let's look around for all the stuff that we've got that's not fair. <laughs> and so if, if we live our lives in this manner, we are ensuring that we're right with God, that we're right with our fellow man, and that we don't allow anything to take root in our own minds. Because Jesus said there were some Jews following him around, John chapter 8. He said to those Jews, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Now I believe, I believe in the power of conversion, the new birth, a point in time experience. I'm a strong believer that God can change your life in a matter of a few minutes. But I also know there is a process that picks up at that very moment that continues for the rest of your life. And Jesus said, how are they going to know you're my disciple? If you are continuing in my word, if you continue in my word. So when Paul now Let's go back to chapter 12. He's talking about the body. The gifts are given for the edification of the body. The Lord hands them out as he wills, as he wants to, according to his pleasure. And Paul said, the end of 12, sometimes I, I wish that they didn't have chapter divisions or something because it's kind of a psychological thing. We pick up at the beginning of the chapter. Sometimes in your Bible reading, if it started a certain chapter, why don't you just back up about 10 verses and read the whole thing. Read it in context because it flows. And in chapter 12 at the end, Paul says, Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Of course, rhetorical questions. The answer is supposed to be no, obviously not. So Paul says, Covet earnestly. The best gifts. So he says it's, it's great for us to have gifts in the church. But he doesn't just leave it there. He says, yet or still, I show you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. In other words... If I have the ultimate gift of tongues, I can speak any human language. I can speak the language of heaven, and I, I don't even need an interpreter. You just find me somebody, I can communicate with them. If I had that gift, but I don't have love, then I'm nothing. I've become a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and, and could... And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing. So what's he saying? He's saying without love, none of these things matter. It ties into the message in the previous chapter about the body. There has to be unity and connection in the body. We're Pentecostal. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. And you can go down a few verses. Verse 8, love never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect or complete is come, that which is in part shall be done away. What's he saying? He's saying when we get to heaven, we get in our glorified body, that we're not going to need a prophet because we're going to know all this stuff. We'll all, we'll all have all the understanding. We won't need somebody to explain it to us. We won't need the spirit to interact or intervene on our behalf because we're going to have all of that. What's we, now we just know in part. We look through a glass darkly, but then face to face, it's going to be clear. It's going to be perfectly understandable to us. Well, what's the implication of that? The implication is that no matter how great my gift is here, it won't be in heaven. What will remain in heaven is love. Love never 
fails. Never stops. And in fact, when we are in, when we are in heaven, we will be interacting in perfect love. We might as well get in the habit of it down here. If there's, a, if there's a skill that you want to develop, it's fine to pray for the gifts. Paul says, go for it. We need that. We need sensitivity to the Spirit of God. We need to know what the voice of the Lord is telling the church. Go for it. But if you want something that's going to carry over, learn how to love. Let me put it a little bit more practically. Learn how to repent. Learn how to forgive. Learn how to be thankful. Because those are going to be the things that carry us over into the world to come. And they are the things that prevent divisions in the body now. Who, who am I to not allow someone into... Now, there are cases for church discipline. I'm not talking about that. But if there's just somebody that I have a personality conflict with or something about even their past that I don't like, on what grounds Jesus died for them as much as he did for me? And everyone that we see, everyone that we meet on the streets, whether on our jobs, in the grocery store, even the ones that cut you off on the freeway, there is the potential there for God to redeem them and for them to be a glorious being C.S. Lewis said that you would not even recognize in the world to come. Think about what Jesus seems to be saying. What Paul is saying to us is when we see through the eyes of love, we're seeing through the eyes of God. And if we can't see our fellow man the way that the Lord sees our fellow man, then our, our walk is deficient. Because we're Pentecostal, we emphasize the gifts of the Spirit. But actually speaking in tongues, not talking about the gift of tongues, but everybody here knows speaking in tongues is the sign of the initial infilling of the Holy Spirit. But it is bearing the fruit of the Spirit that is the evidence of the abiding presence of the Lord. So when the love, when the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, that's the very first aspect of this fruit. If we're not bearing love, if, we're, if, if the Beatitudes are too foreign to us, if 1 Corinthians 13 seems like just chatter to us, then maybe we need to determine, is there an abiding presence of God in our lives? Because God takes his body seriously. And there are not to be divisions within the body. And what that requires is that love seeks not her own. Jesus made himself of no reputation. If someone does me wrong, honestly, I don't really have the right in the kingdom to clamor for vindication and to be made whole and to be made right. That's what's hard about forgiveness. Is I forego my right for justice. When I forgive, I'm recognizing in many cases there's no way it could be made right. Some hurts are so deep, they cannot be made right. And when I forgive, what I'm saying is I lay aside my right to be made whole in that sense. You owe me a debt you can't pay, but I'm going to forgive it. Even whether you realize you owe me the debt or not. That's the nature of forgiveness. But if we don't forgive, and if we hold these debts, they become division within the body, and they, they tear at the very fabric of the body, and they don't allow for the whole to be unified. If unity, if unity is the number one goal, we have to live after these things in this manner. Now, this seems so counter to us. And the first question someone like me would ask is, but how do I know everybody else is going to do that? I don't know if, if y'all know Brother Jeff Arnold, but I don't know, 20, 25 years ago, he said, it's like we feel like if I got to put a dime in the meter, you got to put a dime in the meter. 
That's what we insist. Like, who, like if I'm going to live like this, do I, is, is everybody else in agreement with this? Hey, it's not about what you do. It's about what I do. For me, it's about what I do. The Lord said, if, if I want to be in the kingdom, this is the pathway. And I think it was C.S. Lewis that made the point. In heaven, there are no rights. Nobody has rights. There's only perfect love. You see, we clamor for our rights here. I've worked for this amount of money. I have a right to keep it. I, you know, you can just put whatever right you want and fill it in the blank. But it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, is what the Declaration of Independence says. I don't mean to imply that that is biblical, okay? But they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And so we clamor to have these rights met. But the truth is, if we were all operating in perfect love, we would be willing to use what we have that's extra to meet the needs of someone else. And if we didn't have as much as the next guy, we wouldn't resent it. You know, it's... Oh boy, it's 8.30, I better just go ahead and close. It's, the scriptures did not say that money was the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. And I'm going to just tell you something, you don't have to have money to love it. I, I, <laughs> I have data. Um, you don't have to have it to love it. But if you love it, if that's your focus, whether you have it or not, you're opening the door to all kinds of things. And that's why we say, give us this day our daily bread. The children of Israel got worried that maybe the manna was going to stop, and so they gathered up two or three days' worth, and it rotted and stunk and was a nasty mess because they didn't trust God. So all I'm trying to say tonight is that these things are not just academic. They hit us where we live. And they can hit in ways that are painful and difficult to navigate. But we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. And this is the manner that the Lord is telling us this is the most fulfilling way to live. You will be happy and you will be filled with joy if you are poor in spirit, if you don't count anything that you have as your own and you don't count yourself to bring anything before God to obligate God to you, you will be happy and fulfilled. And if you are meek and all of these other things, why don't we stand together tonight? The writer said, I think it's in Hebrews, follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see God. There is a sense there, not just following peace, but pursuing peace with all men. Didn't really get to it, but if you look down in the very opening parts of that Sermon on the Mount, the Lord says, if, if you come to the altar and you know that your brother has ought against you, Lay your gift down and go make it right with your brother. What's he saying? When there are divisions in the body, it impacts your worship. And he says, I'm not interested in your worship until that thing gets healed. And then the, the further admonition was settle up with your adversary while you're on the way. Don't let it fester. Because you're going to wind up owing a bill bigger than you can pay by the time you get to the courthouse and get it worked out. You need to settle it on the way. Don't let these things fester, but deal with them when they're manageable. It may be the little foxes that spoil the vine, but little foxes are easier to deal with than when they get big. So deal with it while it's manageable. In that instance, don't quench the spirit when the Holy Ghost tells you Ugh, you feel that check in your spirit, deal with it right then. If it means you have to go to somebody, go to them. If it means you have to eat crow and say, you know what, I messed up, and uh, uh, no excuse. Sometimes we like to say, that just wasn't like me. Well, the truth is, it probably was. 
what's not like you is whenever, what's, uh, let me just say it like this. What's not like me is when I have the time and the strength to filter what I'm going to say. That's the part that's probably not like me. But when, <laughs> when the reflex hits, unfortunately, that's when you see the real me. And it's more telling in those cases than in the curated image that we would like to show the rest of the world. All this does is show us we can't do it by ourselves. Without the Spirit of God, we are hopeless. Without the presence of God, without the healing of God, the transformation of God in our lives, we are absolutely hopeless. But the good news is it is available to us. We have access to him on a daily basis. Amen. Lord, we thank you tonight for your word. Thank you that you have cared for us so deeply as to speak these difficult truths to us and that our hearts have been tenderized to the point that we would hear your word Lord, we ask tonight that you would allow your spirit to work and that it would move in our hearts and in our lives and that your words would transform us. Lord, we're trusting in you with everything that we have, knowing that nothing that we have is sufficient to even offer to you. But Lord, you have asked us to give ourselves and that's what we do. We trust it, trust ourselves into your hands tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't we offer thanks to the Lord tonight? He is such a good God. Amen, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Lord bless you. You are dismissed. You, uh, of course, heard our announcements for this weekend. And uh, we're trusting to see you. Uh, The Lord would bring us safely again together. Amen.